Good morning. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. That can be found in your pew Bible on page 515, if you don't have one with you. Our section today that we're going to be covering ends with some of the most fascinating words to me. Um, And so I thought this morning we would begin with the end, and then we would go back and figure out what the end was talking about. Um, The very last sentence in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, reads this. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Fascinating words to me. We should be asking ourselves a few questions when we see that sentence. The first question, of course, is, do what? (laughs) The zeal of the Lord does what? And, of course, everything that's before this text, about 22 verses from chapter 8, verse 11 through to now, is the what? And it's salvation. The Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish our salvation. But there are a couple of questions bouncing around in my mind as I read this sentence, and that is, what does the word zeal mean? And why does God use this word to describe himself? And so I looked it up in a dictionary. The dictionary says that the word zeal is a noun, and it literally means great energy or enthusiasm in the pursuit of a cause or an objective. And so zeal is energy and enthusiasm for a pursuit towards an objective or a goal. The Hebrew word literally means to become intensely read. So again, it fascinates me that God would use this term to describe himself. He is intensely read, if he could turn red, and he is enthusiastic into a pursuit after our salvation. Fascinating term. This word's zeal is a very powerful word. In Proverbs, it is used to talk about the love a man has for his wife. It says, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. And in the context, David is saying here that if a man has a beautiful wife and another man tries to look at her, jealousy will consume him, and he will not spare when he takes revenge upon that man. And I want you to know, all of you here today, I am that man. Okay, if you look at my wife, jealousy will overtake me. Is that true for you? Women, you need to nudge your men. Is that true for you? Okay, amen. Also in Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon tells us, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Interesting verse. Solomon is saying, I noticed that the pursuit of men, this enthusiastic pursuit of men, is rooted in their zeal towards their neighbor. They want to be better than Mr. You know, the Joneses. Song of Solomon says it like this, love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, many waters cannot quench love. And if you know anything about the Song of Solomon, it is a book about the passionate love, the sexual relationship between Solomon and his first new wife. And she says, she says that her love is as strong as death and its jealousy is as fierce as the grave. And that word jealousy is the same word for zeal. 
She said, this is a passionate kind of love, and many waters cannot quench love. And so I don't know about you, but I'm moved. I personally am moved by the fact that God would use this term to describe himself in his passionate pursuit towards us. God loves you with a zealous, jealous, envious, passionate kind of love. You and I are pursued by the jealousy of God, the envy of the Lord, and the passion of the Christ. This moves me. And if that's not enough, the word is used all throughout Scripture as God describing himself stirring up his own zeal. In Isaiah 42, it says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. When I read this verse, I see a Messiah warrior. Have you ever seen those Messiah warriors? They kind of bounce up and down as high as they can. They go, They're getting ready for the battle. They're psyching themselves up. They're stirring up their zeal. Or if you watch the Dallas Cowboys, right, they go, their zeal, you know, the football players are getting ready for the battle. They're psyching themselves up. Our God stirs up his zeal for us. This is why it frustrates me when some Christians try to eliminate emotion from our faith. There are a lot of Christians that I've come across over the years that are afraid of feelings or afraid of emotions. And maybe that's because we've been taught that feelings are fickle. And maybe because we're, our pendulum has swung so far from the charismatics who are so emotional. And we view our faith as something that's stoic. And we need to be faithful and obedient because it's the right thing to do. But can I just tell you, that's like a man who wakes up every morning and tells his wife, Honey, I love you. Because on our altar of the wedding day, I promised I would until you die. No woman wants stoic, faithful love from her husband. My wife has told me she wants zeal. She wants her husband to fight for her. She wants her husband to treat her like a princess, to shower her with jealousy and envy and passion and flowers and chocolate. No father wants his kids to love him because he told them to. You better do it because I said so. A father wants his kids to love him because they they love him. So isn't it interesting that God stirs up his own passion and his own zeal, and this is how much he loves us. And so, brothers and sisters, I say that when we come to church, maybe we should do a little Messiah dance. Maybe we should stir up the zeal within us and say, whoa, 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 I'm here to worship God who loves me and stirs up his love for me. I want to stir up my love for him. Amen? I can tell you guys believe that. Amen? Amen? Okay, so this is what it is. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes our salvation. And so let's look at our text this morning. We're going to begin at chapter 8, verse 11. We have three sections in this text, and I want to read each for you. Chapter 8, verse 11 says this, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. And if I could stop real quick, this is a strange phrase in the Old Testament. The prophet is essentially saying the inspiration of the Lord is heavy upon me at this moment. Of course, the whole book is the inspiration of God that's on Isaiah. But at this moment, Isaiah makes a note to let us know this is heavy, man i got to get this one out. 
And then he says, and he warned me, God warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And in these verses, I hear church bells ringing, if you know what I mean. I hear New Testament passages. I hear Jesus saying, why would you fear those who destroy the body? Why not fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul? Jesus says, fear me. Don't fear men. And here Isaiah is telling us that God tells him to fear God, not men. And then verse 14 says this, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So God says you've got two choices. You can run to me and find in me a sanctuary, or you can run to me and trip over me as a snare. One commentator said it like this. We have two options. How we treat God determines how we experience God. Here is a sanctuary, and here is a snare. And every one of us will experience God one way or the other. If we take God into account as God, then we will enter into his sanctuary and we will experience his presence. But if other things compel us, well, God's not going away. And so we are going to end up colliding with him and tripping over him as a snare. Another way of saying it is this. In the experiment of life, you have two ways of doing life. You can put God in your hypothesis And if you do, then your experiment will succeed and you will find rest for your souls. But if you do not put God in your hypothesis, then your experiment will fail and fail and fail and fail. And this is not because God is vindictive and this is not because God wants to beat you into submission. It is simply because God is. And your hypothesis hasn't considered God to be. And so you're going to continue to trip over him and trip over him. And so we have two options. This stone is going to crush us and make us humble and make us realize we need a Savior. And then we will find in him a Savior. And he will become for us a sanctuary. And he'll tuck us under the shadow of his wing. And we will find rest. Or we can go on about life looking for truth and looking for answers, looking for power, looking for strength and other things. And we're just going to constantly be tripped over the snare Now, this word snare is the Greek word scandalon. It literally means a stumbling block or that which gives offense or causes revulsion. Listen to these words. It makes offense, causes revulsion. It arouses opposition, an object of anger or disapproval. It's where we get the word scandalous or scandal. It makes you mad. It makes you revulsive. It makes you disapprove and you want to oppose it. This word is very, very popular. It's mentioned 44 times in the New Testament and 26 of those times it comes from the lips of Christ. Christ says in Matthew 21, and the one who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken into pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the truth of the matter is, is God is a stone, and you're either going to be crushed by it, 
and be humiliated and run inside of it as a sanctuary, or you're going to trip over it and be crashed into pieces. You've got two options. Simeon, who blessed Jesus, told Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he says, For he is a sign that will be opposed, or in other words, he will be a scandal. This is what every mother wants to hear about their child. He will be scandalous. Paul picks up on this in one of the most difficult texts in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 9. And he says, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. And so Paul says, you see, they have stumbled over the scandalon. And so this morning, our first section of our text tells us that the zeal of God, the passionate love of God, will accomplish our salvation through a scandal. And Jesus and Paul seem to point that scandal towards the religious elite. If you try to work out your own salvation, if you try to do it by works, if you try to muster up your own strength, you're going to trip. You have to be crushed by it and find sanctuary in it. It's not you, it's him. And so we have some scandalous material here. There's always a scandal throughout the history of the world about the difference between religion and gospel. We are still fighting over this issue. What is the difference between religion and gospel? And even myself, as a Christian, as one who seeks to follow Christ, I find in my own faith a distraction between religion and gospel. Because I'm a human, because I'm a man, because I want to do things, and I want to prove things. That's why I really like what Timothy Keller said about religion versus the gospel. He says, the essence of other religions is advice. And Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. So Christianity is completely different. It's news. It's something that happened already, and it's being heralded or spoken as news. It's being reported. You might have heard Fox News say, we report, you decide. And so the gospel is good news. And right now I'm reporting, God loves you. And the zeal of that love is going to save you. Now you decide, do you believe that? He already has saved you. Do you believe that? And that's it. It's not advice. Keller goes on to say, how do you feel when you hear a message from someone who's trying to give you advice about how you should live? This is how you need to have integrity. This is how you need to have honor. This is how you need to love your spouse. They may even give stories of great heroes who did it way better than you. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like you just heard good news? Does it make you feel like the herald just came over the mountain and said, the battle is won, we are no longer in slavery? Keller goes on to say, no, it doesn't. It makes you feel like you're more in slavery. It makes you feel weighted down. It's not good news, it's advice. And the gospel is good news. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. You get the benefit. 
That is scandalous. Our second section begins with verse 16. God knows that people aren't going to hear this message, and so instead he's going to write it. He says, bind up the testimony and seal this teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And then look at this verse, verse 20. It has an exclamation point. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Romans 1.20, Paul sort of illustrates this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is just like what's happening in Isaiah. God's saying, I'm going to write it in the book. If they don't believe it, if they, if they, if they look for necromancers, they look for mediums, they look for answers from the dead, then their hearts are going to be darkened and they're going to grope into the darkness. If you would look at verse 21. <clears throat> he says, go to the teaching and the testimony. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, and by the way, this word hungry is spiritual hunger. They're looking for answers. They're looking for truth. They're looking for guidance and direction. And they're hungry. They're not finding it. Can I just say that I think we live in a world where people are hungry. They're looking for truth. They're looking for answers. And though they think they found it, it's pretty clear that they're still hungry for more. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, <coughs> but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So essentially what God is saying here is if you don't see the hidden manna in this book, if you don't see Christ in this book, then you will follow after your own religion. You will look for your own answers. And as Paul says, you will be given over to your sinful desires. You will be given over to the futile of your thinking, and you'll be groping in darkness. You'll trip over the scandal on over and over again. And then he says, you'll be hungry. And then while you're hungry, you'll shake your fist at God and say, why, why? And then you'll continue to grope in the darkness and trip it some more. And you'll just experience, as he says, gloom of anguish and be thrust into thick darkness. <laughs> Paul tells us that the central theme of the Bible is Jesus and the cross. It is him and him crucified. He says, Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. So if you're looking for wisdom, if you're looking for answers, it is Christ and him crucified, the wisdom of God. But Paul says, that's why we preach Christ crucified. And it is a stumbling block, the word scandal on, to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So we got two kinds of people. The Gentiles are philosophers. They're head, they have head knowledge. They think and the gospel is foolishness to them. Why would God die on a cross for sins? Why doesn't he just forgive you? It doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. But do you notice who's going to stumble over the stone? It's the Jews. It's God's people. It's the people who know God but do not trust in him or, or do not include him in their hypothesis. And so we have the same today. I've, as I've worked on this message, I've thought, if it's God's people, if it's the Jews who are stumbling over him, 
How is that true today in our own evangelical Christian mindset? Do we stumble over him? And I think that it is true that we stumble because the gospel of Christ just just destroys our pride, destroys our self-confidence. We want to do something. We want to give God an assist. We want to help in the gospel, but it's all Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. And the way we do this is interesting. Can I get an amen if you think sometimes we do this? We try to help God in the process. We give him an assist. Any amens? Okay. But the way we do it is interesting. We never say that we do that. We say we believe in grace, we believe it's all Jesus, we believe that he paid it all, but then we live our lives in a different way. And I like what John Piper says about this. He calls it a debtor's ethic. In his book called Future Grace, he talks about a pastor that he heard preaching a sermon. And a sermon was about the need for Americans to recover the call of duty and devotion to Christ, which is a good message, right? I mean, I hear this message a lot. Y'all need to do better, try harder, and think harder, and do better. And stuff for Jesus. Because there was a man in the 1700s who did better than you're doing now. And he says, this way of motivating duty and devotion seems harmless, even noble. Its appeal is strong. And I love this sentence. It speaks in words that are almost above criticism. No one would criticize me if I stood here and said, try harder, be better, do gooder. No one would criticize me. They'd walk out and say, he's right, and you try harder and be better and be gooder. You might say, well, he could be better and gooder. He says, for example, it might be, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that before. He gave, you this very, he gave his very life to you, now how much will you give to him? And Piper says, this language is hazardous. Hazardous language. He calls it the debtor's ethic And in the debtor's ethic, he says this, the Christian life is pictured as an effort to pay back the debt we owe to God. Usually the concession is made that we can never pay it off, but gratitude demands that we at least work at it. Good deeds and religious acts are the installment payments we make on the unending debt that we owe to God. He says this debtor's ethic often lies, perhaps unintentionally, beneath the words, we should obey Christ out of gratitude. And then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, this appeal to gratitude as a way of motivating Christians is so common it may come as a shock when I question whether it has much biblical support. It's scandalous. It is grace. We are saved by faith through grace and it's no work of our own. It is a gift so that you can't boast and even if you try to boast, that's filthy rags to God. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, He gave his only son. Whoever believes will live. And we try to assist him. We try to prove that we're good enough. It's scandalous. 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 Our third and final section begins at chapter 9, verse 1. God first, this is fascinating to me, God first declared this scandalous message, the scandalous gospel through the prophet Isaiah. He knows no one's going to listen. So he says, seal it up and write it in a book. Maybe future generations will listen. And then he knows they still won't listen. So he says, I have an idea. Let's take that scandalous word of God and let's make it flesh. Let's make it breathe. Let's make it alive so that you don't just hear it. You don't just read it. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can experience it. This gives me goosebumps. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, but... There will be no gloom 
for her who was in anguish. And if you'd like to write in your Bible, what I would do is underline the word no gloom in anguish. And then you'll see how it connects to chapter 8, verse 22, where it says those people who refuse to read the Bible and understand God's truth will walk around in darkness, the gloom of anguish. And so there really probably shouldn't be a chapter break here. God is saying they're going to walk around in the gloom of anguish. Then there's a turn. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then in verse 3, he says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And again, that connects to chapter 8, verse 22. They will be thrust into thick darkness. I want us to see this. God says there's two options. You've got a sanctuary. You've got a snare. You get crushed by the rock that is God, the zeal of his love, and you will be humiliated and fall to your knees, and you will cling to him, and in him you will find a sanctuary, and he will tuck you under the shadow of his wings, and you will find rest. If you don't do that, then he's going to be a snare. You're going to trip over him. You're going to seek after your own truth, and you're going to continue to trip after him, over him and be angry and be opposed, and be, it's going to be a scandal. You're going to be oh, opposition against God, and you're going to be groping in the darkness, and you're going to experience the gloom of anguish. But then God says, and you deserve that, you really do. Paul says God gave them over to their sinful desires and the, and the lust of their hearts. God says, but that's not good enough. Because the zeal of the Lord wants to save those people. And so if you have found rest and you have been um, running to God as a sanctuary, then praise the Lord, you are under the shadow of his wings and you find rest. But the zeal of the Lord is in hot pursuit for those who are groping in the darkness. The mission of God is I must reach them. And he turns it and says, though you deserve to be where you are, I will shine light in your darkness. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. This is the missio Dei, the mission of God. He is constantly expanding his people, constantly expanding his nation. Um, this Harkens um, Revelation chapter 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Here in Isaiah, it's the same picture. God has multiplied his grace to all the nations. He has increased their joy, and they rejoice before him as the joy of the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. One commentator said, God is going to destroy war, completely eliminate conflict. We ain't going to study war no more. You've heard that song. And he's going to throw those tools, throw those clothes of warfare into the bonfire of his love and grace. See, God doesn't say, I'm going to, Solve your problem of the big bullies who are killing you by becoming a bigger bully and kill them. He says, no, I'm going to solve the problem by eliminating conflict completely. There will be shalom. There will be peace. 
And did you hear this verse 3 when he says, uh, or verse 4 when he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the right. Did that sound familiar to you? Did you have church bells ringing again? Did you hear Jesus say, hey, are you weak? Are you heavy laden? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Here, Isaiah pictures God as breaking the burden and breaking the yoke and breaking the conflict. It's all over. One commentator said this, the passive voice will be burned, will be broken, will be, all of those passive voices whisper that this victory is not our accomplishment. We step onto the battlefield after the victory is already won and all we do is celebrate. The battle has been won. And we say, hallelujah. Who won the battle? Isaiah gives us a hint. He says, broken as in the day of Midian. And if you're a Bible scholar and very smart, you would have recognized that Midian rhymes with Gideon. And you would have thought, maybe he's talking about Gideon. And he is. Gideon was this, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Gideon was this deliverer who was lacking in faith, lacking in trust, weak, insecure, and he's afraid of the enemy, and so he's threshing his wheat in a wine press at night, and God says, I've chosen you to deliver your people. And he says, no, I'm afraid. I ain't doing that. He says, nope, it's you. I want you to do it. And he has no faith, so God has to go through this like three-day drama about a wool and a fleece and dew, and it's a long story. I don't have time to tell you. God has to prove to him that he's God. And so finally, Gideon says, okay, fine, I'll do it. And he gets 35,000 people in his army and some horses. And God eliminates all the horses and eliminates all the people, but 300. And says, no, you're not going to win this battle with 35,000. You're going to win it with 300. And with an audacious bluff, God sets those 300 people around the camp with a trumpet and a flame and a lantern. And they all blow their trumpet and light their lantern. And the enemy thinks there's 300,000 men in the woods. And so they kill themselves and die. Gideon and his army don't even lift a finger. And so, and so Isaiah is saying, like in the days of Midian, I am going to conquer all your sin, conquer all your enemies, put an end to war with a little guy like Gideon, a little weakling. Who is this that's going to step on the stage and fight our battles for us? This is scandalous. It's a baby. Verse 6 says this, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Shalom. This is scandalous. What? You want me to put my hope in a baby? This is explicitly scandalous in its context here in Isaiah. What's happening here in Isaiah is Ahaz, the king of Judah, is in a predicament. The Edomites, the Philistines, the Syrians, they're coming down to destroy, and Israel have made an alliance to come down to destroy little old Judah, which is just two tribes. And on the outside of them is Assyria, which is huge, one of the largest empires we've ever seen. And Assyria wants to go through Israel and Judah and conquer Egypt, and Assyria will. And Judah is afraid. He either has to make an alliance with Israel or make an alliance with Assyria. And, of course, Judah and Israel are constantly at odds. And so he makes an alliance with Assyria. Assyria's king's name is Tiglath-Pileser III, which literally means trust me. Isn't that interesting? 
And God is simply saying, don't trust him, trust me, because you're going to have a baby. King Ahaz is like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You want me to sit and wait for a baby? When is the baby going to be born? How long is it going to take before the baby becomes this person? This government is upon his shoulder. 25, 35, 45 years? We'll be dead by then. We'll probably be dead by tomorrow. And Ahaz has already made an alliance with Assyria anyway. (laughs) But for us, it's just a scandalous. For us, it is about Jesus. Jesus is this baby. We know that already. But do we put our trust in Jesus? This baby grows up in a blue-collar town called Nazareth, and he's a carpenter. Do we put our trust in that? This Jesus is going to die upon a Roman cross, a filthy, ugly, horrible death. And Isaiah said, we will not even look at him. He has no stately form, no majesty. We would not esteem him. He's just a twig, a shoot, branch that needs to be cut down. And he will be cut down. Is that what you're going to put your faith in? Or are you going to put your faith in military might? Are you going to put your faith in your 401k? Are you going to put your faith in your bright little noggin? And that's why Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. And again, it's scandalous. Mary sings this song when she finds out she's going to give birth to the Messiah. <laughs> she says, He, that's God, has shown strength with his arm, which is completely Going back to Isaiah, the arm of the Lord shall be revealed. And he has scattered the proud. Listen to this. This is important. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good news. Remember we talked about hungry earlier. The rich he has sent away empty. Mary seems to get it. She seems to know Isaiah pretty well. God is going to exalt the humble. If if you're crushed by the stone, you will be exalted and you will find rest in his sanctuary. And he's going to trip up the proud and trip up the rich and trip up those who think they have it all figured out. And so this is scandalous. It's scandalous to think that you should put your faith in a baby. It's scandalous to think that you should put your faith in a dead man. Can I add real quick, he's no longer dead. He did rise. You knew that. This is why I like what Timothy Keller said about faith, how scandalous it is. Faith, he says, is like a man who's running and jumps off of a cliff. And he's falling on the side of this cliff, and he notices there's a branch sticking out of that cliff. And he reaches out to grab it, hoping that it will save him. And Keller asked this question, how much faith do you have to have in order for that branch to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. And Jesus is the branch. He's just a scraggly little branch. Will you grab him? He's strong enough. He's capable enough. You see, I think sometimes the way we see it is this. I grab the branch. (laughs) I'm saved. You see me? Saved? It's because I have faith. Mm, 
I have faith. I'm, I'm stirring up my faith now even mm, on this branch. You see, it's my faith that's saving me, not the branch. I have faith in my faith. <laughs> and Keller says that's wrong. It's not the quality nor the quantity of our faith. It's the object. He is enough. And I think for some of us, this side of the cross, in our own circles, this is scandalous. Scandalous. So if you're here this morning, I, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you've, you've been tripping over the stone of scandal, you've been trying to live the experiment of life without including God as part of your hypothesis, then I want you to hear this. And I hope that you've heard it a billion times this morning. God loves you with a ferocious, zealous, jealous, envious, passionate kind of love. If you're in the darkness, he's going to shine light in your darkness because he loves you. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So it doesn't matter what dark alley you've crawled out of. It doesn't matter whose bed your boots been under. He loves you. Do you know that he loves you? All you have to do is trust in him. All you have to do is grab the branch. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes shall have everlasting life. I've just given you good news. We report, you decide. Do you believe it? For the rest of us who are Christians, and I imagine that's about 99% of us, we have to ask ourselves, what now? Did I say something that pushed your button this morning? Did I ruffle your feathers? It's hard to preach a message called the scandal without pushing someone's button. What I think is interesting is that if your button has been pushed by the scandal of God, I've tried to think, how? What could I have said? And I even was cautious to be sure to quote people bigger and smarter than me like Keller and Piper. Does that push your buttons? I thought maybe one way it might push your buttons is you might say, well, it sounds like that preacher's preaching a scandal to me. Sounds like cheap grace. Have you heard that before? Cheap grace. And I understand what that means. Cheap grace means we peddle the gospel in such a way that it becomes cheap and it doesn't cost you anything. But can I say, it doesn't cost you anything. Cheap grace means we peddle it in the marketplace, but we don't tell you that it's a stone of offense that will crush you until you become humble and go inside the sanctuary of God. And I agree, that is cheap grace. If we just say, hey, God loves you, come on, without letting you know that you have to be crushed by this God first. But that's not our job to crush him. It's God's job to crush him. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said about cheap grace. And he says both. Cheap grace is both sides of that coin, and we sometimes forget the second side. The second side is this. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as a Christian conception of God. But it has no power. Paul felt this very much, I can tell, in Romans, in Ephesians, in Galatians, in Colossians. He's telling us this grace of God must be a scandal to you. If it doesn't trip you, if it doesn't make you fall, then you've missed the point. It must be scandalous. You can't treat grace like it's a doctrine, like it's a term, like it's a, like it's a conception of who God is. No, you need to collide with the awesome zeal of God's love. He loves you so much, he would go to the deepest, David says, to hell to save you. 
And if that doesn't scandalize you, then I don't know what will. Will you pray with me?